Welcome to Roman's Road, the podcast of me, Eddie Roman. This is where we talk about evangelism and apologetics and all kinds of Christian stuff. Welcome back. This is part two of our interview with Bill McKeever from Mormonism Research Ministry, a group that has been challenging the claims of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since 1979. You're going to want to check out the website, mrm.org. That's mrm.org. This is a place for Christians as well as Mormons who have questions about Mormonism. So great website, lots of resources. I encourage you to check it out. So without any further ado, whatever ado means, here is part two of my interview with Bill McKeever. From the Mormons' perspective, they would say, you know, first came the Bible, and the Bible was true, and then time went on, and then came the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Mormon is now further revelation, and, and, the, and they have other books, I believe, and, and even now they have apostles, and those apostles, just like the guy laying down this law about how you refer to the church, not Mormon anymore, use this term, now they have apostles that are giving their church further revelation. And, and so that, that's an issue. We as Christians, we believe the faith has been once and for all delivered to the saints in, in the form of the Bible. We can look to the Bible and that's where we get our truth from. And there is no more further revelation. You know, God would not, if someone was to come to my church today and say, hey, God talked to me last night. He said, all of us need to buy Toyotas from now on or, or anything. We could easily say, well, no, because that's not in the Bible, and it's kind of like case closed. That's a silly example for people who hate Toyotas. But the Mormon church, they have a different take on this. If one of their apostles was to come down and say something that is totally new, no one's ever heard before in Mormonism, if they lay down a new truth, a new commandment maybe, I, I don't know, but if they bring a new revelation in their system of belief, that is possible, that God could give them more revelation. And so, you know, this, this is just kind of the way they think. First you had the Bible, that was true. Now you have all these other things that are also equally true, truth from God. So how do we as Christians deal with their claims of further new revelation? Okay, I think a good answer to that, we can go back to the Puritan writer, I think John Owen mm -hmm. had a, an excellent statement regarding that. And let me paraphrase him. He says that if a revelation agrees with what Scripture already says, we don't need it. If a revelation huh. contradicts what's in Scripture, we should reject it. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It's really not that difficult. Here's what we find with a lot of the new revelation that's been given to the LDS people. Okay. Joseph Smith was notorious for this because he argued that God still speaks and he speaks through his selected prophets, which of course, that was him right. at the time. So of course, he's going to try to legitimize what he's telling these people. Yeah. How does he do this though? First of all, Every professing Christian in the 19th century during this time looked at the Bible as being the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith comes along and says, well, we do believe that the Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Now, that's Article 8 in the Articles of Faith, they which Mormons still hold to. They, they still say that today. They I, still I've heard that, that term 
when I'm talking to Mormons about the Bible, they'll say as so long as a, it's translated. A good correctly. response to that would be, well, could you show me where you feel the Bible is not translated correctly? Now, this is going to put the Mormon on the spot, hmm. and this is where I, I have a, a tactic that I like to use. Okay. And, and I like to cite from the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. A lot of Mormons don't even know about the Joseph Smith translation. They've certainly never seen one in a bound volume. The Joseph Smith translation, his alterations, I don't like to call them corrections because they're not correct, right. but his alterations are in the LDS edition of the King James Bible. They're usually found in footnotes or endnotes. So that Mormons have a King James version yes. with their own, it's like their study Bible exactly. kind of thing. They have okay. their own footnotes and they're usually coordinated with their other scriptures like the Doctrine and Covenants mm. or the Pearl of Great Price. But they also have in there most of the alterations that Joseph Smith made in his Joseph Smith translation. It's also known as the inspired version of the Bible. But they don't have the Joseph Smith translation. They, have they don't use it as a bound volume. They use the King James. And okay. uh, in fact, I think one of the reasons why, and I think Brigham Young, uh, the second president of the church, answered that dilemma quite, uh, I think, uh, in a way that gets them off the hook. He says, okay. if we were to go to people's houses with a Bible that they're not familiar with, that's going to be a stumbling block for them to believe what we have to say. So huh. it's better to use the King James, which of course at that time, that was the standard. Right. Uh, and so people would be familiar with that, as many people are very familiar with it today. Interesting. Now, Joseph Smith, though, in 1830, claims that he's commanded by God to give his church a new translation of the scriptures because Smith's already given these hints and teaching that the Bible can't be trusted. Hmm. Well, the Bible can't be trusted. Help us out and give us a Bible that we can trust. So here's what he does. He takes a King James Bible, he opens it up, and he just starts making alterations wherever he feels necessary. He has no ancient languages to go by. He doesn't go by any ancient Hebrew. He doesn't go by the Greek. He just starts making alterations. If you wonder if whether or not you have a Joseph Smith translation, all you have to do is look at Genesis chapter 50. Smith actually puts a prophecy of his own birth in there. In Genesis right. chapter 50, he puts himself right into his own scriptures. But then he goes and makes all these other alterations. But here's what's fascinating. Because Smith was not so far, you might say, off the rails theologically in 1830, mm -hmm. because this doesn't start really happening until after 1835 and then 1840 and 1844 when he dies. This is when he's really teaching some strange doctrines. Okay. A lot of what he leaves intact in his Joseph Smith translation read just like the King James or would read very similarly to any other Bible that we would use. And okay. so I, I kind of know where those verses are huh. that he leaves intact, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Titus 3, 5. He leaves the Isaiah passages intact, Isaiah 43, 44, yeah. and 45, that speak of only one God. So these are all places where the Bible goes totally against Mormon doctrine, yes. yet Joseph Smith didn't tamper with the like those are still the same and the reason why is because at that time he probably agreed with a lot of those huh, things he doesn't start getting away from those teachings till later on yeah this is why when we have mormons come to our house they'll usually want us to read the book of mormon and to right. pray whether its message is true or not well if you read the book of mormon it's it's a history of a people that there's no proof 
that they ever existed. The Nephites uh, mentioned in the Book of Mormon, uh, there's no proof that Nephites ever existed in the Western Hemisphere. Another group of people were known as the Lamanites. They all came over here at the same time. Uh, Nephi and Laman were sons of Lehi, according to the story. Um, but there's no evidence that Nephites ever existed. So yeah, so according to the Book of Mormon, America was once inhabited by these different groups, groups of people that you're mentioning, and yet you're saying there's no evidence for any of this stuff. There isn't any evidence for them. We could find places where the Indians lived, um, cer certain kinds of Indians that, you know, we can look in history books, and uh, American history book claims this group of Indians lived here, and there's evidence to back it up of, let's say, you know, arrowheads or their pottery or, or whatever, but with the Book of Mormon you're saying there is no evidence to back any of this up. Well, they would argue that the Book of Mormon speaks of two people groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites. The Lamanites uh, were the dark-skinned, uh, well, they were Nephites, you might say, uh, but they followed one of Lehi's sons, uh, who was named Laman. Okay. Laman was a wicked son, and because of his wickedness, God cursed him with a dark skin. All of those ancestors of the Lamanites have dark skin, and they are the ancestors of the American Indian, according to mm -hmm. Mormonism, according to the Book of Mormon. The problem, of course, the DNA doesn't support this, and DNA has not been very <laughs> helpful to the Latter-day Saints on this issue. Kind of hard to get around that Yeah, one. because if the Book of Mormon is true, that means the Lamanites are of a Semitic heritage because Lehi was of the tribe of Manasseh, according to the Book of Mormon story, so his sons naturally would be Semitic as well. But yet we don't find that in the American Indians. Hmm. Uh, the anthropologists had been for years saying that uh, the American Indians came probably over the Bering Strait, you know, many years ago. Their heritage goes back that direction, not towards Israel. Okay. So this causes a huge problem for the Mormon church, and so they've had to readjust some of their teachings a little bit, but they still want to believe that there were people here when Lehi, okay, when Lehi came over, he intermixed with people that were already here, and this is why, through this what they call genetic drift, we can't trace their lineage, okay, like we should, but we have the Book of Mormon story. Yeah. And the Book of Mormon story says that Lehi, as I said, was of the tribe of Manasseh, came over across the ocean when uh, Babylon had conquered Jerusalem. And so there's the, that's as much history as you get. After okay. Babylon conquers Jerusalem, or I should say before that happens and Lehi leaves, all that history now becomes fable. And there's no evidence for this. I've gone on more than one occasion to a history museum across the street from Temple Square in downtown Salt Lake City. I've gone in there and I've, I've sought the people out that are giving the tours and guiding people around and I'll ask them, you know, where do you keep your Nephite artifacts? They don't have any Nephite artifacts. This is a Mormon history museum. This is a Mormon history museum. This is where you'll find a lot of history about the, the Mormon movement. But when it comes to any historical things, it's completely void. Wow. There are no spears, there are no chariot wheels, there are no, nothing that would give us any proof that Nephites ever existed. You have to accept it by faith. Yeah. So you, you gave us the uh, John Owen quote having to do with um, what, what to think about the Mormons' claim about their, their books, their apostles being 
more revelation. Is there anything um, that you use, scriptures in the Bible or in any, anything else that would be an answer to you know, a Mormon claiming, we have more revelation, we have fur- further revelation, we have the Book of Mormon? Because from my, my point of view, it, it seems like that is just a, a, a very serious claim. Someone's speaking for God here, you know? Right. And I know that, that there are places in the Bible that kind of show, no, that, that, that kind of ended. You know, any, any thoughts on uh, well, that? Well, the Mormon will try to get you to see their point and that they believe that God still speaks today and that God can produce new scripture today. Mm-hmm. Rather than get into a big argument about that, I, I will usually say something like this. Let's say, hypothetically, God could give us new scripture today. I mean, God's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. He doesn't do my bidding. He, he could, let's say, possibly do that. What would it look like? if he was to do that, then they would probably say, well, it would look like the Book of Mormon, (laughs) or it would look like the Doctrine and Covenants. And I said, well, okay, let's look at the Book of Mormon. Let's look at the Doctrine and Covenants. Because I find a lot of Latter-day Saints want to point to the Book of Mormon because they use a type of circular reasoning. How do you know the Book of Mormon is really Scripture? Well, because we have a prophet who said that it's Scripture. Well, how do you know he's a prophet? Well, because he gave us the Book of Mormon. Hmm. You see the circular reasoning yeah. there? That's not real good evidence, but right. to a Latter-day Saint, that's probably all they need because they've been told Joseph Smith was a true prophet. But yet when I ask them, well, have you ever tested Joseph Smith to see whether or not he was a true prophet according to the two tests in the Old Testament? And then I wait, and usually they're waiting for me to tell them they where the two no tests are, and I'm not telling them where the tests are at this time in the conversation. And so when they finally have to admit they don't know what the two tests are, I'll, I'll usually chide them quite politely. I said, really? So you accepted Joseph Smith as a prophet without testing him according to the two tests in the huh. Bible? Do you think that's using wisdom? Well, and what are those two tests? Well, of course, you have Deuteronomy 13. You have Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13 deals with the subject of if a prophet comes to to the people and he starts teaching a different God than the God that they are familiar with, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Mm. you can be sure that this guy is not a true prophet. Well, as we were talking about earlier, Joseph Smith certainly invented a new God. He told us that his God was once a man, who's the offspring of another God who was also once a man, who was the offspring of another God who was once a man, going clear back into eternity past. And if you think about it, if that reasoning is true, we don't have in Mormonism, in the beginning, God. We have in the beginning, man. Because you have to be a man first before you can become a god. There is no primary cause in Mormonism who created all of this. Because I've often told Mormons, If you have a primary God that created all of this, that's the God I want to know because that's the God of the Bible who created all things. I want the God that started it all, not his great, 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 great grandson down the road. Because that becomes even more problematic for a Latter-day Saint because if you ask them about them becoming gods, they'll say, well, yeah, but we'll never be more powerful than Elohim or the God of this world. I go, really? Well, wouldn't that mean that Elohim, the one you call Heavenly Father, is not more powerful than the God that preceded him? And they'll have to agree. And that wouldn't that mean that that God is not more powerful than the God that preceded him? Do you see the problem here? Every generation of gods gets weaker and weaker yeah. with less power. 
Somewhere back there, there's a really powerful one. Exactly. You know? and, and if a Mormon was to become a god, mm -hmm. hypothetically, they would be less in power than Elohim. They would never surpass him in his ability to know or even his ability to perform anything. It's so fascinating because I, I think that there's a lot of things, you know, if you play these things out to their logical conclusion, there's a lot of things that Latter-day Saints just don't even think about. Like I remember one time I was talking to a, a Mormon and we were talking about the many gods that came before and they were openly admitting that they, they thought they would be a god someday or they were hoping to. And I just, I asked them, so, so you're, you're a polytheist, you, you guys are polytheists. And the person had this blank look on their face like they, they had never thought of that before. And I guess maybe there's a sense of they wouldn't see themselves as polytheists because they're not actively worshiping a bunch of different gods. But at the same time, they believe that there's a whole lot of gods out there. You they know? certainly do. That and is and it's interesting you bring up the word polytheist because uh, oftentimes when I'm talking to a Latter-day Saint uh, and that word comes up, they'll deny it by saying, well, we only worship the Father. Okay which of course would make them at best a henotheist. You believe in many gods, but you only worship huh. one of those gods. That's still unbiblical. Right. <laughs> okay? You're still not any better you know, off believing that. But here lies a huge problem. When Gordon B. Hinckley was alive, he used to love to say over and over, we worship Christ. Well, wait a minute, if you worship Christ and you also worship the Father, there's two. So that doesn't make you a henotheist anymore. That would make you a polytheist if they are, in fact, two separate gods, which, of course, is what Mormon, Mormonism teaches. They don't believe in the Trinity, though right. I've had Mormons use the word Trinity, but they don't, don't define that word as one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Instead, they look at the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as three separate gods. That's what we would call tritheism. And so, so three separate gods working together in, in yes, some Yes, they're, they're they huh. have one common goal and they're not going to do anything to contradict each other, uh, but they are in fact three distinct gods. Now here lies a problem with that. When you go back into Christian church history, you don't find tritheism ever being a problem. Christians didn't believe in three gods. Right. They were very monotheistic. In fact, for all the criticism I hear Latter-day Saints give the Council of Nicaea in 325, mm -hmm. and they'll say, oh, that's when the Christian church really you know, you know, got away from the truth, really went apostate. I says, here's what's fascinating with the Council of Nicaea, though, guys. You don't find anybody arguing for tritheism at the Council of huh. Nicaea. Interesting. Nobody was arguing <laughs> for that because nobody believed that. Yeah. And if Mormons want to believe that what they are is a restoration of the way the Christian church believed originally, you're not going to find any evidence for that. In fact, you're not going to find any evidence for a lot of the things that Mormons believe. Christians never believe these things. So for them to claim it was a restoration, that J Joseph Smith was restoring what the early church believed and practiced, that's just unfounded. They were just from the mind of Joseph Smith or maybe something that he had read about heretics in the early years. He seems to embrace a lot of those things, but a lot of those things that he embraced were not things that the early Christian considered to be orthodox. Yeah. Well, so Bill, I could see the possibility of a, 
a Christian listening to this and they're wanting to reach out to Mormons and they've just heard a whole lot of stuff and they're thinking, how in the world am I ever going to wrap my mind around all this stuff? And, and of course, we realize that you have been doing this for a very long time and you've been studying this, in a lot of cases, probably a lot more than most Mormons study their own doctrine. And so in order to um, kind of bring it down to the level to where any Christian can get into a, a conversation with their, their Mormon neighbor, um, what, what are some key Bible verses? You know, because they would say that the Bible is, is the Word of God in, in, in some form, whatever that might look like in their mind. What are some key Bible verses that we need to have on hand as we talk to Mormons? Well, one of the key verses that I find myself going to a lot of times when talking with Latter-day Saints, especially when it comes to the issue of grace, mm -hmm. they'll often throw out, well, James 2.20 says, faith without works is dead. Yeah. I'll look at them and I'll smile and I go, I agree with that. And they'll look at me like, what, you're not supposed to? I says, no, I believe a living faith is going to have works. But again, as we discussed earlier, the works don't justify that individual any more than their faith did and what Christ did for them. But the verse I'm going to use after they bring up James 2.20 and I explain why I believe James 2.20, I'll ask them, well, why is it though that you don't believe James 2.10? Why is it Latter-day Saints love to quote James 2.20, but I've never heard Mormons bring up James 2.10? Which, of course, James 2.10 basically says that if you want to be saved by the law, you better keep it all because if you offend the law in one point, hmm. it's as if you've offended it in all points. I don't hear Mormons bring that up. <laughs> that lines up with their own teaching, as mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. Right, they should be keeping all of the law. But yeah. see, Paul brings up in Galatians the same point, that if you're not keeping the law in, in its entirety, all you're going to get out of that is guilt and condemnation because if you want to be saved by the law, you have to keep it all. That's why the law was such a horrible taskmaster right. and why the liberating gospel is so great because Jesus paid it all. We believe His sacrifice is all sufficient for us. There's nothing we can add to an all-sufficient payment. It's as silly as trying to pay a mortgage after you've paid off your house. <laughs> the bank's going to send your check back. They, right. they don't need this. The debt's huh. been paid. Well, it's the same way with our debt. It has been paid in full by what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. If you don't get that, you're not going to understand what the good news is all about. And unfortunately, the Latter-day Saints, they don't really get that mm. because they are told over and over to do their best and then do better. I mean, in general <laughs> conference, twice a yeah. year, you listen to those sermons. My associate, Eric Johnson, my co-author and, and my co-host on our radio show, he, he likes to always use this phrase that conference messages are like kicking the tail messages. You go to conference and you get kicked in the tail basically to do better than what you've done previously. Wow. And you can imagine how much guilt the average Latter-day Saint feels from that when they imagine. leave conference knowing they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So conference, this is, this is something that Latter-day Saints go to twice a year? Is this something that... They're required to go to, or, or how does how Well, does they're that not work? required to go to it, but it is kind of a positive peer pressure. You want to listen to what's being said at General Conference, because as one of their leaders said several years ago, 
He said, when you go to general conference and you listen to God speaking through his servants. Wow. So conference messages certainly have a much higher standard of authority than let's say a comment that a Mormon leader may have put in a book. Mm -hmm. If it's mentioned in general conference, it's almost as if it's found in a manual. Wow. And so it does have a higher standard of authority. So we love to quote conference messages. You can get a lot of good stuff in general conference. And we like to go through the conference messages and read the transcripts. We listen to them as much as we can uh, to, for voice inflection and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, but we often like to quote the conference messages because Mormons do have a tendency to respect them. So this is something that even if a Mormon doesn't go to a general conference, and, I, and I'm assuming these things happen in Salt Lake City. The conference itself happens in downtown Salt Lake in the conference center, but Latter-day Saints will often go to their local chapel, and oh, okay. a, a chapel is the building, the congregation is called a ward, but they will go to their local chapel or their stake center, and they will have the conference on television. Okay. They'll beam them in, they'll live them, live stream, and they'll watch them there. Uh, of course, to be there is certainly a, a, an e-ticket item. Sure. Of course, I just said e-ticket, which dated me because <laughs> most people don't even know what an e-ticket is yeah. anymore. But it, that is the highlight for a lot of Latter-day Saints, is to be there in the presence of their leaders who they feel are prophets and apostles. Yeah walking the earth today. Okay, but, but you're, would you say your average Mormon who's, who's trying to do what's right by their church, they're gonna, they're gonna hear those conference messages in, in some form, whether at their ward or like, I am, I'm assuming they could get these things, you know, as uh, podcasts or videos. Yeah, or they're anything. online. Oh, okay. In, in fact, the uh, messages usually, they'll play them live and then the, the message itself will go online and you can watch it again almost immediately. The transcripts usually take a few days before they come out, but then the transcripts will be in the next edition of the Ensign Magazine, which mm. is an official magazine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and all, everything will be in there. Okay. And I like to wait for the transcripts in the Ensign Magazine because citing the Ensign, I can cite the exact page and a Mormon oh, yeah. can know right where to go to find no. what I'm referring to. That's important. Okay, so James 2, that, that's, that's a, a great place to go. What, what's another uh, key Bible verse that, that's just a good thing to, to know when you're talking to a Mormon? Well, of course, I like to go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Salvation is based not on works, lest any man should boast. But I want to make sure that when I quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that I also cite verse 10. And I think that can be very important huh, with the yeah. Latter-day Saint because verse 10 speaks of us being created unto good works. Right. So I'm not denying that works should follow, but I need to explain to my, the Latter-day Saint that I'm talking to that the works follow. The works are the result of us being saved, right. not the means for getting saved. And yeah. In their theology, it most certainly is. But if they don't like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, this is one of those verses that Joseph Smith left intact. It reads basically huh. the same in his Joseph Smith translation. So they can't say that's mistranslated. That's interesting. And now, isn't there kind of a, a similar verse in, is it the Book of Mormon that, that basically says something very similar to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you are saved by grace 
after all, after you, can all you can do. Okay. That's Second Nephi 25:23. Yes, yeah. it says that we are saved by grace after all we can do. When you ask a Latter-day Saint to define that for you, um, they might have trouble with that because is anybody always doing all that they can do? Nobody well, that, does that. Well, that goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Just, you, you know, you basically have to repent and then continue to keep the commandments. Right. And, and basically that's, you know, you're doing all, all you can do. Well, what, there are some Mormon apologists that have, I guess you could say, gotten very clever with this. Okay. And so they will say, well, when it says that we're saved by grace after all we can do, that really means in spite of all we can do. Now, it doesn't say that. Huh. It doesn't say that at all. That's a complete rendering of the text that we would call eisegesis, right. reading into the text something that's not there. Well, scripture tw twisting. Yeah, the part. difficulty for a Latter-day Saint to stick to that kind of interpretation is Mormon leaders don't interpret it that way. Hmm. They have interpreted it as it reads, right. that you need to do all you can do, and then you get the necessary grace that will forgive you of her sins. See, that goes right along with DNC section 1, verse 32. You repent, you keep the commandments, then you get the forgiveness. Right. So they would see that as no contradiction. But when a Mormon says, well, it means in spite of all you can do, the only way I usually refute, refute that interpretation is by citing what Mormon leaders have said about that mm. verse or what Mormon manuals have said about that verse. And it's certainly never understood in that way. Yeah, so it sounds like with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, they're kind of doing this, the same thing as they're doing with James. They're disregarding what it actually says and, and they're, they're saying the way you're saved is by doing all this stuff where in chapter 2 of James that's not showing the prescription of salvation that's the description of salvation exactly this is showing this is what salvation looks like exactly. this, this isn't the way you get saved right so. and unfortunately because Mormons don't usually do a real good job at exegeting the passages yeah. They only mimic what they've been told by their leaders or something that they've read in their manuals, and so they will merely parrot what they've heard without actually looking at the text and what it's really saying. Mm -hmm. They just assume this is the way it should be understood because that's what their leaders have said. So I think it becomes important for us as Christians to walk them through some of these things, to yeah. show them why that verse in particular, James 2.20, should not be looked upon as, as you said, a means of the works justifying the believer. Right. You know, no, it's a result of already being justified. Now, people in other religions are often surprised when we know verses from their holy books, you mm -hmm. know? I, I, I can't imagine that a lot of Mormon missionaries run into people who aren't Mormons who know some verses from the Book of Mormon. You know, you obviously know quite a bit. You've been studying this for a long time. What, what are some key verses from either the Book of Mormon or another Mormon source that just continually come up, something that you, you could say, you know what, if you're going to reach out to Mormons continually, this, these are a couple good things to know from the Book of Mormon. Oh, wow, I didn't bring my Book of Mormon with me, but let me see, off the top of my head, one of them would probably be Alma 1137. Okay. Alma 11.37 basically says that God cannot save us in our sins. Huh. Mormons have interpreted that meaning. Uh, we have to overcome our sins if right. we hope to be saved. Yeah, makes sense. Um, if God cannot save us in our sins, then I guess he can't save anybody because we're all sinners. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We've That's all got right. that problem, Mormons included. 
but that's a verse that sometimes comes up, and yeah. usually by asking them, well, what do you mean, not saved in your sins? And if they give you the traditional understanding, they say, well, we, we have to overcome our sin. Again, it goes back to that very simple question. Well, how are you doing at that? Yeah. Well, it's the usual answer. Well, I'm trying, and there we go right back to, right. okay, trying is not doing it. Trying is a good attempt, but it's a failure at accomplishing what you're wanting to do. Yeah. Man, I feel like we've only just touched the surface of, all, you know. You're right, we have it. only touched the surface. I mean, and, and so um, let's step away from the issue of information. You know, we have the correct information from the Bible. We, we have some information from the Book of Mormon. That, that's all important. But just on a more practical level, you know, I'm going to talk to my Mormon neighbor or friend. What are some practical things I can do, maybe in the way I talk to a Mormon or, you know, the attitude I need to have when talking to, to, to someone about such a personal issue? There's nothing more personal about what you're believing in concerning God and the afterlife and, and your relationship with what you see as being God. What are just some, some good tips, I guess you could say? What are, what are some good things to keep in mind when I'm having a discussion on, on such a such delicate thing as uh, matters of faith? I think, first of all, we have to recognize that the Mormons are people, just mm. like anybody else. They happen to be a religious people, certainly, but they are people, and yeah. they have needs just like we have needs. They had the need for the forgiveness of their sins, just as we had the need for a forgiveness of sins. I think they need to see us as people who are genuinely concerned for them, that we're not just looking to win an argument or to embarrass them, but to have a meaningful conversation. And what I mean by that is, I often tell people, never accuse a Mormon of anything. Hmm. I always go approach the Latter-day Saint. Now, I know what they should believe, obviously. I've been studying this for over 40 years. I know what they should believe, but I've also learned from experience that not every Mormon believes what they should believe. Some so it, of them so are kind of rogue on some issues. So when you're saying never accuse them of every, everything, what you mean by that would be, I, can't, I shouldn't walk up to a Mormon and say, you believe you're going to be a god someday, or you believe it's okay to have a bunch of wives or, you know, that, that kind of thing. You, you gave a perfect example. Never start a sentence with, you believe. <laughs> <laughs> you can start it with, well, I heard you believe. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I, always give it the, I always want to give the Latter-day Saint the opportunity to correct me because I could misunderstand some things, at least right. with what he might believe personally or she might believe personally. That's just showing people respect. Exactly, and I think it's one of the least offensive ways of communicating hmm. with people who are not going to agree with what you believe. Right. I get that. I understand that. But if we come up and we say, well, you believe this and you believe that, that Mormon might not believe that. Right. And what you've done is you've just accused them of something that's untrue. Hmm. So your credibility starts to go down yeah. with them. And I don't want to lose credibility with them. I, I've had some amazing conversations with Latter-day Saints, missionaries in my front room, and merely by asking questions, and that causes them to ask me questions. I want them to ask me right. questions because I know they have stereotypes regarding what I believe, just as I know many Christians have stereotypes about what they believe. Yeah. What better way to solve that than to have them ask me so that I can give them hopefully a clear, concise understanding of what the gospel really mm, is. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping to do. So you don't want to accuse them, you want to ask questions. 
and find out where they are. And the answer to the question hopefully is going to formulate your next question right. based on how they answered that. Yeah. And I find it to be the least offensive way, uh, least offensive way of communicating. Yeah, it's a com I, want, I want to keep that conversation going as long as it possible. Be it becomes a conversation as opposed to an interrogation. Correct. It's a so, good way of putting it. Yeah. And I, and I think we could all agree that sometimes Christians get a little zealous. Yeah. And, and I tell people, you're probably going to have what I call those palm to the forehead moments. <laughs> I've had lots of them, Eddie. Don't, don't think that I've never had those. I've had lots of them. Well, the more you put yourself out there, the more you're likely to have right. those. But I've had many of those times where I've walked away going, oh, I could have said this differently. Why did I say it that way? Yeah. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? But see, I, I want to constantly examine myself because I'm trying to correct myself in how I portray myself mm. as a follower of Christ to these people. Oh, that's great. And I've had frustrating days. I've had times when I've walked away feeling really good about that conversation. Right. I often tell the story of two missionaries I had in my home. And usually, as I, I like to do when I, the conversation's coming to an end and they have to go, I, I like to ask if I can pray for them. And they usually will always say yes. And so I will pray for them and I will simply say, look, we're all here looking for truth. We want to believe what's true because I've already explained to the Latter-day Saint in the course of the conversation that believing something that is false does not honor God. Mm -hmm. And I'll pray those kind of uh, prayers. And then usually I'll shake their hand. Well, these two guys, this was interesting. Um, I go to shake their hands and the, and the first guy, he hugs me. Huh. And I often tell people, I don't get hugs from Mormon missionaries very often. <laughs> right. And I thought, well, okay, well, this is probably a good thing, okay? And then I went to shake the other guy's hand, and he hugged me too. But what did that tell me? It showed me that we left as friends. Right. It was an amicable parting. Hopefully, and, and I often try to stress this when I speak at churches, we don't want to become the Mormon missionary or any Mormon's war story. Hmm. And Man. oftentimes, the wow. way we behave, we become a war story that the missionaries talking about all those evangelicals. Yeah. And I'll often ask them this. I'll say, where did you serve your mission? And they'll say, well, I served it down in the South. Oh, I says, a lot of evangelicals in the South. How did the Christians treat you? Now, I know I'm putting myself out yeah. there when I ask this question, and usually... It, it, the answer is quite negative. How many times did you get the door slammed in your face? Yeah, how many times? And, and uh, they, will, they will remember those times. Yeah. I want them to remember a good example mm. of a Christian who had a definite concern for their eternal well-being. And I'm not just trying to win an argument. Yeah. I am trying to get them to see my perspective, definitely. But if they don't, it's not going to affect my relationship with right. them. It's possible to disagree with someone strongly yes. um, and have a, have be uncompromising in the things you say and yet show that person respect and show them compassion in the way you talk to them. Absolutely. And that's, that's a great goal. I, I like to leave this kind of a feeling with them because I've been, as you can imagine, over the years been treated pretty badly by a lot of Mormons. And it makes me walk away thinking, even if I was or were to believe what they believe is true. Would I want to sit on a same pew with an individual like that? Huh. Well, I turn it around and yeah. I ask myself oh, that. Absolutely. Would they, if they came to see what I was telling them was true, would they want to sit on the same pew with me? Boy, we, that's something for us to keep in mind 
regardless of who we're talking to and what religion or non-religious person, you know? Um, that's, a, that's a great thing to ask ourselves. And, and the way I'm talking to this person, if I do get them to come to my church, are they going to want to sit next to me? Right. <laughs> you know? right. What, a, what a basic great thing to ask yourself. Well, Bill, it's been a great, like I was saying, we just touched the surface. If someone wants to get more information on the subject of Mormonism, um, you have a podcast, you have a newsletter, you have a whole lot of resources. So uh, where, where do we find this? You can find all of that at our website. If you go to our website, mrm.org, on the home page, there is a button there that will take you to the podcast. And also we have a lot of articles there. If they want to get our newsletter, there's a place that they can sign up for that. It's free. Um, but we have all that available through there. And we also have a, a quote-unquote bookstore where we do offer some of the materials that we have. Yeah. A copy of our uh, book that Eric and I put together called Mormonism 101, as well as a book that we worked on that I wrote originally called Answering Mormons Questions. We have those available too, but you can get those on Amazon at a local Christian bookstore, although lo local Christian bookstores are becoming few and far That's between right. nowadays, but uh, still, they're out there, and there's a lot of information in those books also. Okay, so friends, as, as you're listening to this, I know a lot of you have friends and relatives who are Mormons, and Mormonism is a very old and very deep religion with a whole lot of different facets to it, and it's very likely that whatever facet you're dealing with has been dealt with at some point by Bill, and, and you can find something having to do with that issue um, in the materials on his website. So I would encourage you to, to get over to mrm.org and just look around and subscribe to his podcast. It's free. And just, you know, get to know this, this information because God may use you to communicate a, a lot of these different truths to your Mormon friend or neighbor. So I just want to encourage you to do that. So Bill, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great. I just praise the Lord for you and all he's doing through you and Mormon Research Ministries. Thank you, Eddie. My pleasure. Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org. Hopefully this episode has encouraged you. If you want to help this podcast spread far and wide, you can give us a good review on iTunes and just share it with your friends and family. And I'll see you next time when we take another trip down the Romans Road. Ray Comfort here. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please take a moment to do so now. On your phone's podcast app, search for Romans Road, and when you find it, hit subscribe. It's free, and by doing so, you'll get all episodes past, present, and future. Then when you're finished, head over to livingwaters.com for a huge collection of evangelism videos, articles, tracks, and resources to help you share the gospel with those around you. That's livingwaters.com. Thanks for listening to Romans Road. If you want to learn how to evangelize, check out my book, Search and Rescue, available at eddyroman.com. On my website, you'll also find videos and other things to encourage you to preach the gospel to your friends and family. That's eddyroman.com. See you next time. Yeah.